0: Hi, this is John. By the way, I am sitting at my desk at home, so you hear papers rattling and everything else because I'm just informal. But I'm looking at my Come Follow Me manual, and the chapters involved today are Acts chapter 16 through 21. And I'm excited about this because in May of this year, I got to go to Athens and Corinth and see some of these places where Paul was and where Paul actually spoke especially Mars Hill or the Areopagus remember that in the Romans would call him Mars but the Greeks would call him Ares so this Areopagus is this Mars Hill is where Paul was and they have a plaque on the side of the rock with the entire Paul's entire speech there in Greek and as I studied this and got ready to talk to a group in Greece that was going there It was fun to see what Paul was doing here, and I I gained a much greater appreciation for this rather brief speech here, and maybe we're not getting all of it, maybe we're getting the bullet points, but in Acts chapter 17. Now, as we've studied Paul, we've learned he always seemed to do the same thing. Apparently, around the Mediterranean, there were Jews everywhere, so he would find the synagogue first. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. What I like about this is he wasn't indifferent. I might have been. I think I might have walked by, oh boy, those guys are, they're messed up. They're doing it wrong or something like that. Well, live and let live or something, but Paul has a calling. Paul has a responsibility. Paul has seen the Savior and asked him, what should I do? And and so now he's this apostle to the Gentiles, but he always goes to the Jews first. So his spirit was stirred in him. Verse 17, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. So first in the synagogue with the Jews. So what would Paul talk about there? Obviously, he would get out his... Torah, his Old Testament, because Paul is a Pharisee, and he could argue the law with anybody. So he would go there and try to prove, I believe, by the scriptures they had, that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied by the prophets. And, you know, sometimes that went well and garnered a few converts, and sometimes it didn't, so he probably got kicked out. So then what happened? Verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And then I love this little parenthetical comment. It's actually in parentheses, verse 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This gives us a real insight, I think, into this time, this place, this culture. They're smart. They think they're smart. They're philosophers. Let's get together and, and just argue and debate and talk about some new thing. So, and I also thought, if you've got time to spend your time in, this could be hyperbole, but spent their time in nothing else, if that's all you do, you've got a lot of time on your hands. You, <laughs> you must have a high standard of living You must not have to spend your day farming and figuring out how you're going to eat and feed your family. So what do they do? They spend their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. Yeah, we heard about this guy. Let's get Paul and see what he says. So, verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now, when I read too superstitious, I think that means too superstitious. But the footnote, 22a, the Greek, is most religious, i.e. careful in divine things. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, verse 23 continues, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now some of the commentaries I've read have said that they were so anxious to please all of these gods that they had, that they would even, just to cover their bases, put an altar to an unknown God, just so everybody was covered. So Paul uses this as a place to start. And what I love about what Paul does next is so much of this without knowing, and I don't know all about all of the different Greek myths and Greek gods and Greek legends about how this was created, and that was created, and this island was created, and those people were created. But it sounds like Paul is countering a lot of those. And you have to read it kind of slow. Verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. So, what do we learn right away? There is a God that made the world, and He made everything. There are different, aren't different Greek gods who created this and different Greek gods who created that. But there is a God who created all things. So, I put in my margin, God the Creator. Verse 25, Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. He giveth to all life and breath and all things. So I put my margin, God, the sustainer. He's put us all here, and he's giving us life and breath. Verse 26, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. Now, interestingly, other translations, instead of saying of one blood, say of one man, Adam. So he's made from Adam came all the nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So I put in my margin, God placed us here. He's, he's put us here. He's even somehow this is all organized. Maybe someday we'll know. Why did I come now? Why didn't I come In Paul's time, or in a couple of thousand B.C., will he determine the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation? Verse 27, "...that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us." Now, I like that verse because that just kind of says God is accessible. In fact, he wants to be found. If you look, if you're looking at paper scriptures like I am, At footnote 27b, Acts chapter 17, verse 27 in the JST says, If they are willing to find him, for he is not far from every one of us. I like this idea of Paul teaching of a God that's not kind of indifferent to what humans do, but a God that created us, that gave us life and breath, that determined when we should come. And that is not far from us. And if we're willing to find him, we can. Verse 28 For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, For we are also his offspring. So Paul knew enough that he could even quote their poets. Notice that Paul is not doing what he did in the synagogue, he's not going to get up at Mars Hill and read the Torah. But he quotes their own poets. This is why I like to say that Paul was more than an instrument in the hand of the Lord. He was a Swiss army knife because he he could speak different languages. He was so educated and knew how to talk to the Greeks. Verse 29. For as much then, as we are not the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. Continuing that idea, at the times of this ignorance, thinking that God is of gold or silver or stone, God winked at. What does winked at mean? Well, if you look at the footnote 30b, it's overlooked or disregarded. At the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Oh, so I put in my margin God, our ruler. By verse 28, I've got God, our Father. Verse 30, God, our ruler, he's commanding us to repent. Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Wherefore, he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. God, our judge, and that man is Christ. So he mentions Adam in verse twenty-six, in first Adam and Christ in verse thirty-one, verse thirty-two, when they had and the the basically the speech is over in verse thirty-one that God has raised a man from the dead. There isn't anything about the atonement of the cross in here, but this is an introductory way to get them listening. (laughs) Verse thirty-two, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So resurrection was considered, I think, foolishness to the Greeks. Matter was considered coarse and unrefined and corruptible. And why would you ever want your body back? That's crazy. So this speech for Paul, for me, is impressive. So if I were just to read the notes in my margins again, God the creator, God the sustainer, One man, Adam, God placed us here. God is accessible. God is our father. God is our ruler. And God will judge through his son, through Christ. And that Christ has been resurrected. So that is the speech in Athens. What happened? Well, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, Now, remember, the the name of Mars Hill is the Areopagus. Some think that Dionysius, the Areopagite, was part of the city council there, part of a ruler there, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So the speech was effective because some believed. Some mocked, some believed. It sounds like Peter on the day of Pentecost, doesn't it? Well, that's how Acts chapter 17 ends. And then Paul goes in Acts chapter 18, to Corinth, and notice in verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks, and then goes to speak in Corinth. So starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 18, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, later come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla. Because the Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. For by their occupation, they were tent makers. Those are, that's verse 1 through 3. Now, part of understanding why he would stop there and be with tent makers, it's really helpful to know that in Corinth, it was a huge trade route. In fact, there's a there's a canal that's something like six kilometers long that they dug down in the late 1800s. They had made a couple of attempts anci- anciently, but it didn't work. But ships would stop, and they would unload the ship and carry all of the stuff and even the ship on rollers over a road they called the Close and then unload it on the other side. And it saved them from going around the... The big southern peninsula part of the Greek isles called the Peloponnese. And <laughs> that's what it's called. <laughs> and it would save them hundreds of miles of sailing. So during that time, of course, that means this is a big trade route. People would stop, people would hang out, people would get a hotel, people would do whatever while their goods were being hauled to the other side of that road to save them from going around the dangerous part. Of, of Greece. So where would they stay? Well, maybe they'd stay in tents. Another thing that's important here is that this, this Isthmus, which is part of what they would traverse to save all that travel time and the dangerous part of the sea route, was the host for the Isthmian Games, which was, understand, slightly smaller than the Olympic Games. And the people who came to view the games would also stay in tents. So maybe this is why Paul would join with this group and with Aquila and Priscilla and stop and make tents. Another thing that in some of the research I read, for example, the the Acro corinth next to the city of Corinth, there's this tall mountain, there was a temple up there, and the Strabo, the historian, an ancient historian, who was known to exaggerate, said that there were a thousand temple prostitutes there employed. And this helps us see why Paul had to speak so strongly about morality and chastity, because of what was going on in Corinth. And, again, people stop, it's a trade route, people get a hotel, people get a tent, whatever. You can see it's a it's a place for strong temptation and sins and so one of the things that i discovered in my research is that to corinthianize actually became a a synonym for fornication so the corinthians really needed really needed the gospel and we don't see it here as much but we see it later when Paul writes his letters to the Corinthians. So we have Paul in Corinth here, and then we have First and Second Corinthians when Paul writes to the saints in Corinth later. Anyway, I'm hopeful this has helped you appreciate Paul and how wonderfully adept he is at working with any audience and testifying of God and Christ as he does so. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.